Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. My name is Dr. Ursula Hackett of the New Books Network, New Books in Public Policy podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Francis Lee and Jim Curry, the authors of The Limits of Party, Congress and Lawmaking in a Polarized Era, which was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2020, and which won the American Political Science Association's Gladys M. Camera Award for the best book in U.S. national policy. Uh, so this is an absolutely fascinating study of majority party influence in congressional lawmaking over the last 50 years. Um, and first of all, I'd like to hear a little bit about how this project came about. So, Francis, I wonder if you could just tell us the origin story for The Limits of Party. How did you and Jim come to co-author this book? Well, it started out just as a, a conference paper. Uh, our effort uh, was to take a look at how legislative entrepreneurship had changed uh, with the rise of party conflict and the centralization of power in the leadership. And so, you know, we just began to take a look at some top line data on what the uh, what co- enacting coalitions looked like, you know, what, um, you know, the who supported the laws that Congress passes, both the important laws and also routine legislation. And we kept confronting the fact that very little change had occurred in the composition of enacting coalitions, that they... um, that they looked the same. The minority party supports the enacted legislation that uh, in the polarized era. And so, we, we, that, I mean, that, that led us to begin uh, this investigation into, you know, well, what is majority party capacity uh, in a polarized Congress where very little legislation passes without minority party support, substantial minority party support, and usually a majority of the minority party in support. So what does, what, what, how do we understand the rise of partisanship in light of um, the lack of change on the outcome side, on the lawmaking side? So that was the puzzle that motivated the book. And in this book, in many ways, upends um, our sort of expectations about the influence of partisan polarization on lawmaking. I mean, um, party seems to be both everything and nothing. Um, in this conversation. And so you say in the book that legislative processes have changed a lot, but legislative outcomes have changed, haven't changed much at all, Um, Jim. So I wonder, could you unpack that statement for our listeners? Tell us a bit more about about what you mean there. Yeah, I mean, one of the clearest changes in Congress over the past several decades has been how much power and process have centralized in the hands of partisan leaders in both the House and the Senate, Uh, whereas in the past, you know, Congress was seen as this decentralized institution where committees were really preeminent and legislation sort of bubbled up in sort of a decentralized way. These days, major legislating essentially starts with the leadership 
where they set the agenda on what they want to accomplish. They may delegate some of that out to some top committee leaders to take the reins, but leaders are involved from start to finish. Um, Often they will bypass these old formal regular order type processes of committee consideration. They will shut down amendment and a lot of debate on the Senate floor, and they'll largely negotiate these packages behind closed doors um, in order to get them through to the finish line. And there was large assumptions made in the literature and in existing scholarship about how that kind of process should empower parties to get more of what they wanted. Um, But that was something that we found that hadn't really been tested very closely if you were focusing just on, well, what were the actual final outcomes in terms of making a law? Um, And so we see all this change um, to how a bill becomes a law. We're seeing it right now if we're watching what's going on in Congress with budget reconciliation and the bipartisan infrastructure framework. Those did not follow very straightforward traditional processes at all. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there will be more partisan outcomes in the end. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it seems that there are lots of different metrics of policymaking success that maybe I, I was sort of stewing around in my own brain when I was reading your book and just sort of trying to disentangle them and thinking about, you know, various different understandings of what what success might look like, whether we're talking about the number of bills passed, whether we're talking about minority party role rates, whether we're talking about the level of bipartisanship um, or getting all of what you want some of the time or some of what you want more often, um, the size of the bills, bill substance, policy outcomes, the credit claiming opportunities. I kind of, I mean, so there are all these bills that you describe um, in the book that, you know, that pass on partisan votes, but then ultimately come to embarrass the party that actually um, pass them. So like the sort of Medicare modernization and the crime bill, the Democrats in 1994. Um, and I just wondered if you could tell us, um, Francis, a little bit more about these metrics, metrics for success um, and, and which ones you find most compelling when you're telling this story about uh, congressional activity and majority party congressional activity in particular. Well, you, you're absolutely right that there are a variety of different ways one can approach this question of, uh, you know, whether parties are succeeding or not. Jim and I, um, to you know, to tackle it systematically, took two approaches. One was to look at aggregate lawmaking, so all the laws that pass, as well as all the laws that um, are regarded as important, drawing on David Mayhew's uh, list of uh, important legislation. Uh, Then we developed a a measure of our own that looks at what the leaders of the parties set out to accomplish in each Congress, the leaders of the majority party. So we tracked that by looking to the legislation slotted in or the bills slotted into the leadership reserved bill numbers, generally HR 1 through 10, S 1 through 5. And we looked to the speeches given by the Senate Majority Leader and the Speaker of the House at the start of the Congress. Uh, So what did they say they wanted to accomplish over the next two years? And so we would just make a list. In general, it's about a dozen items long for Congress. And then just track legislative histories just to track what happened, whether they um, achieved most of what they wanted on uh, their agenda items, some of what they wanted or none of what they wanted. And uh, what uh, stood out, of course, is that uh, failure is the most common outcome on these top agenda items for the majority party. And uh, failure is almost as common in unified government as in divided government. Um, and so, so then, um, you know, as we discuss our findings in the book, you, we look at particular cases 
to illuminate for the readers that, you know, we are um, uh, examining the major legislative initiatives over, over the Congresses in our period. And also discuss the various kind of nuances, which is, you know, as, as you flag, even when there are uh, successes for parties in the moment, they often don't prove to be political successes over the long term, that um, a, a party might might succeed in passing legislation without any cross-party support, just steamroll its way to its uh, desired end, but in the end have to um, apologize, <laughs> as, uh, as Hillary Clinton did for the crime bill uh, during her presidential run, um, or, uh, or, or just to um, find that you can't really campaign on these achievements. Like Democrats quickly discovered that even after the passage of the Affordable Care Act, Democratic constituencies were disappointed. And that when they tried to go back to the electorate to, um, you know, to, to say, give us another lease on power, um, they found that that wasn't a, a, a good talking point uh, to, to, to ask for continued support. And I mean, I'm sure that the Democrats right now in Congress, as as, as Jim was mentioning, are this absolutely um, uh, enormous challenge that they face in terms of negotiations over the infrastructure package, over the social safety net, um, and the difficulty that they're having, even in the rec- even with reconciliation. I mean, even with all these unorthodox processes that you describe in the book. And I hope we can come to the unorthodox uh, lawmaking in a moment, but. Um, I just wanted to say that actually this, there is such an extraordinary amount of data that you have in this book. I mean, you've you've done so much um, work here in terms of tracking all of these items of legislation and also interviewing members of Congress. And I, there's some fascinating material there that I hope we can get onto to to have a conversation about that. Um, I mean, this the, the, the big story with respect to this data that you've amassed on majority party successes over time is that it just hasn't you know, the levels actually haven't changed that much. Um, and, uh, you know, you set that against what we read in the press, what many of our listeners may have seen um, when they read the Washington Post or the New York Times and the sort of the decline in terms of the number of pieces of substantive legislation that Congress is able to pass, the increase in the amount of sort of, you know, empty messaging um, bills. Um, and I, you know, I, I suppose they might be thinking, well, is it true that these smaller number of huge omnibus bills that Congress might from time to time be able to pass, is that equivalent to the kind of a smaller number of substantive pieces of legislation that might have been passed in the sort of mid-century or later Congress? Um, Jim, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the timeline you're looking at. But Mm -hmm. if you compare the number of pages of laws getting passed today to the number of pages being passed in the 50s or 60s, Congress is passing more law today than it did then. And it's passing about the same amount of law as it did in the 1980s. So by any benchmark where you're looking at the volume of new law that's being enacted, if you simply, if you ignore like the count of, of simple, just the count of number of laws, which is misleading because some laws are big and some laws are small, Congress in many ways is doing more um, than it did a couple generations ago and about as much as it was one generation ago. And that's something you just don't hear very often. You tend to just hear Congress can't get anything done, but it, it, it clearly does pass a lot. And this most recent Congress is a really good example of that, where you have the CARES Act, which is just one of the most landmark pieces of legislation we've ever passed. And then in December, uh, Congress had passed this massive omnibus bill that include more COVID relief, a 
defense reauthorization, and dozens of other laws that maybe a generation or two ago would have passed individually that were kind of all passed together in one fell swoop. And it was the longest law in American history at over 5,000 pages. Actually broke the printers on Capitol Hill when they tried to print it off. Um, It still counts, even if it was passed as one bill number. It's still a lot of law and a lot of policy. Uh, And it's just harder for people to notice when it happens in that manner. Yeah, I mean, that, that's so funny. I had no idea. I didn't realize that there was a, there was like a physical infrastructure problem there on Capitol Hill. How interesting. So, But I mean, surely this, because it comes back to this question of just the different metrics of success, doesn't it, Jim? I mean, it's you've got these, the, 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 there is also this question of uh, what happens down the road. I mean, once these things are actually over the line, does, does there, is there a big difference in terms of, um, you know, the effect of these massive omnibus pieces of legislation in terms of public understanding, in terms of uh, on the public policy uh, sort of feedback side uh, that maybe you didn't get with the the smaller number of substantive legislation where everything being packaged up separately. Yeah, I think it clearly obscures what all the good stuff Congress is doing because so many of these things just get ignored. You know, when Congress passed that massive package in December 2020, the entire focus was on COVID relief and even then mainly on, okay, Americans are going to get new stimulus checks, which is great. But it was just one of the things it did. And I saw very little coverage of all the other stuff. You have to kind of dig around and actively search, like, what was in the 2020 omnibus bill? And then you can read some really interesting stories about uh, these climate change provisions and these other things that you wouldn't have expected Congress would have passed under divided government with both Republicans and Democrats in control. But they did. But if the public doesn't know about it, that's a huge public relations problem for Congress, who now is a hard time shaking off this perception that it's simply just unable to solve problems, unable to pass legislation and sort of just limps from sort of crisis point to crisis point and that's it. Mm -hmm. And it's absolutely this uh, question about trust in in American political institutions and the the downgrading of American democracy by the economists, which is based in part on the polarization and the, and the loss of trust. And, and, and that's obviously not just about Congress, but um, about all sorts of institutions. But um, I mean, it's something that I think about a little bit, because I come at this from the, the point of view of the, the submerged state and the, the, the conversations about the ways in which policymaking is increasingly delivered through private intermediaries. And there's a con- concomitant reduction in the amount of trust uh, and, and, and in, increased informational asymmetries between the general public and the elites. And that has a sort of corrosive effect on American democracy. And I suppose, uh, uh, you know, the things that you're describing here are, are actually pretty consequential in terms of people's understanding of, of what the government does um, for them. Um, so, I mean, the part of the way that you um, get a real handle on these developments is through your interview data. And I, I love this because it, it really opens up a whole world, I think, um, uh, uh, in terms of sort of getting the inside scoop. And so one of the things I thought was quite interesting that you discover in your interviews, Francis, was that you, this, this idea of partisan polarization actually fueling efforts to initiate bipartisanship rather than reducing bipartisanship, as we might sort of um, uh, imagine would be the case. So I wondered if you could explain that dynamic. Uh, what's going on there where partisan polarization on the ground is actually fueling um, bipartisanship efforts? Well, one thing we know about um, polarization is that it means that there are fewer uh, members who who are swing voters between the parties, members who are prepared to vote with the opposing party on significant legislation. The parties behave more as large blocks in their voting behavior. 
But what this means from the vantage point of legislators trying to get um, legislation over the finish line is that they wind up having to go to the opposing party's leaders to negotiate. So rather, you can't attempt in the contemporary Congress to pick off just a few swing voters to build a minimum winning coalition uh, to legislate. You need big bipartisanship in the polarized era rather than, uh, than you know, uh, you know, trying to uh, to win over a few pivotal swing voters, uh, and so that that that's uh, some insight that our interviews um, provided to, um, to us to help shed some light on the patterns we were seeing, which is very little legislation passing narrowly, most legislation garnering a majority the minority party, and so we you know we're talking to a. Uh, a senior staffer, he says, well, you know, he's a, a senior Republican staffer. He says, we don't know what can get you just, you know, five or six Democratic votes. You know, uh, they go in groups. Uh, and so, you know, if you can get any Democrats at all as a Republican on board, then um, you, you wind up getting most of them. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's characteristic of our polarized era, very paradoxical. Um, but that, that is the um, experience that our interview subjects testified to and our data also um, confirm. Mm-hmm. So this is fascinating to me because you've got this juxtaposition, as you say, Francis, there's kind of a paradox to this. Um, it, it, it's the, the focus on the, in, the individual, but also on the collective. Whereas when you're thinking about reaching out to the opposing party, you're thinking about the party as a unit. You're thinking about dealing with the party leadership rather than necessarily picking off the individuals. Uh, but then when it comes to your own party, and, and trying to sort of rally your troops, you really do have to think about the individual because you're, you know, even just a few of them in these very, very tight partisan uh, uh, times, uh, you know, are, are, can can actually sink you. So you really need to be thinking in terms of the collective and in terms of the other party and then in terms of the individual in your own party. So I'm just wondering, you know, how has um, the sort of professionalization, the institutionalization of party organizations over the course of the, the time period that you describe, you know, how has that affected that dynamic between the, thinking about the individual versus the collective? And has that reversed over the course of the 50 years that you, uh, your data describes? You're right that the individual still matters. Uh, and in fact, you know, in our interviews that comes through that, uh, you know, a uh, 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 Republican staff are telling us that you know you're not going to pass legislation that has Democrats on it and also has Ted Cruz. So you're going to lose you're going to lose the right of your flank as a as a, a, a Republican coalition leader uh, if you are doing bipartisan outreach. And so then that means even more bipartisan outreach is necessary. Uh, so the individual um, certainly still matters uh, in. Uh, uh, in these negotiations, but the parties certainly also work more as collectives. They meet continually, uh, and there's temperature taken in the caucus. I think this has been one of the most significant changes of the, uh, uh, in how Congress operates. It's less transparent to outsiders because caucus meetings are not open. Lots of negotiation, lots of temperature taken is taking in that t- uh, in that setting, and we don't. We don't see the internal divides within the parties play out on the floor, uh, the House and the Senate, the way we used to see it. This is happening in closed door settings, but it still happens. Um, and uh, and so I think that's another way in which the process has changed, but the fundamental politics of trying to get legislation through a bicameral Congress of 
um, members elected in single member districts has changed less than it appears. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I just wanted to pick up on this point about transparency, because, I mean, one of the things, Jim, that we heard earlier this year was that earmarks are back after having been, uh, uh, inverted commas, banned um, for the last decade. Um, and I just uh, wondered whether you, ha- I, I don't think you really discuss it in the book, but I just wondered whether you had any of the insights that you, you gleaned in your book had, um, could tell us a bit about what might happen uh, with the return of earmarks um, and whether there was uh, you know, the, the question here about the deliberations and the transparency of the process and of these sort of backroom cutting deals um, was going to come into play again. I mean, it certainly gives the leadership another bargaining chip to try to get some members on board. It's unclear how successful that's going to be. I mean, that, right, that was one of the talking points for bringing them back. It was like, oh, it'll be easier to build coalitions because you can get people on board with legislation by offering them earmarks. But it's it's not as though leadership didn't already have a lot of bargaining chips to be able to try to get members on board. That's part of why these big omnibus bills happen is you're trying to get enough people together to pass this big thing. And so you have to include all sorts of people's different priorities, all sorts of different groups and factions within Congress. You have to include their priorities. It's certainly something else, but I don't think it's as necessarily as big of a game changer. Just another way they'll be able to negotiate behind closed doors to try to build the necessary coalitions to actually pass something through the House and the Senate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, one of the things which I uh, uh, found um, uh uh, very powerful in your book was that the, the way in which you are scrupulously even-handed in your treatment of Republicans and Democrats. Um, it's a very laudable thing. Um, and we, we know, of course, that the, the Republican Party has moved further to the right than the Democratic Party has moved to the left. And um, uh, there are um, uh, uh, we, the various political scientists and political historians have, have documented the way in which the Republican Party has uh, become in some ways more extreme and more anti-democratic than the capital D, Democratic Party has. Um, Does that asymmetry have any consequences for the lawmaking you describe, Jim? I mean, uh, you you hear Democrats saying, you know, we don't have the killer instinct in the way that the Republicans do. Um, uh, So we can't overcome our own lovely big tent divisions. Um, What does your book have to say about those potential asymmetries uh, between the Republicans and the Democrats? Well, we didn't find any big differences between success rates for Democrats and Republicans, the ability to pass things on a more partisan basis between Democrats and Republicans. We found that the way these things played out was remarkably similar. And I think there is this perception that Republicans are more unified and extreme along some really conservative point and that Democrats are more fractured. But we found that internal party divisions matter just as much for Republicans as they did for Democrats. Maybe they're just better at talking about it out loud than the Democrats are. But when push came to shove for a lot of the things they want to do, like it's the same kind of divisions that came about. Republicans from um, more coastal states and more moderate districts oftentimes didn't want to go along with some of the things that Republicans wanted to do, or you saw the reverse where some of the more extreme Republicans um, didn't want to get on board with something that might have been more towards the center of the political spectrum. Um, they, Republicans certainly have a hard time unifying behind one of their biggest policy priorities, one of their biggest talking points, which is to reform entitlement programs. How long have Republicans been talking about reforming entitlement programs and have they done it at all? No, because it's a nice thing. It sounds good in the abstract, but when push comes to shove and they have to actually put together a law or a policy that will do so, it turns out there's a lot of internal divisions within the Republican Party about how it should be done, 
which has kept them from being able to make any progress on that sort of issue. Just as Democrats have had trouble making progress on climate change issues and massive social welfare uh, expansions, because when they try to actually put together a policy to do these things, you see what happens. You have sort of the progressive left and the Democratic Party conflict with your more moderates like your Joe Manchins and your Kristen Cinemas, and it's hard to find a point of agreement to even go and then try to negotiate with the other side of the aisle, even if, if that's possible at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to leap in there, Francis? Well, the devil's in the details with these big packages, with these major initiatives, and that even though the parties are not as internally divided along ideological lines today as the congressional parties were in the 20th century, they still struggle with getting behind a single piece of legislation. Um, And so we found uh, in looking at why majority parties fail on their initiatives, we found that they fail because they can't get together uh, internally just as often as they fail because of veto players uh, uh, that the um, uh, opposing party can put up, like, you know, the Senate filibuster that uh, they struggle just as much internally as they do with other obstacles in the American political system. So I'd like to uh, focus in on these internal party uh, sources of party dissent, because I think that's obviously playing a very important role in your in your conversation. And that is the one place in the book where I found that there was a dissimilarity that you, you uncover in, in terms of your in, through your interview data uh, between Republicans and Democrats, because you find that for Republicans, there are more sort of um, uh, regional divisions. That, that's the biggest issue there. And whereas with Democrats, it's more about leaders versus rank and file. And you don't see that on the Republican side. And I'm just wondering whether you could tell us a bit more, um, Francis, about the, the causes and the consequences of these different sources of internal party dissent. You know, it, are there consequences, really, uh, for your story? I mean, we know from looking at roll call data that um, the that um, that uh, div- divisions in Congress are uh, are more aligned on a single dimension than they used to be. So what this means is that it's that the internal divides within the parties are more idiosyncratic, and they differ more from issue to issue, and that we don't have, say, a regional divide as existed between the Northern and Southern Democrats in the 20th century. So it's hard to summarize, you know, what um, w- what these internal divides are, that they don't line up in a consistent way that makes it easy to say, well, this is the problem for the Democrats and this is the problem for Republicans. But our interview, sh- interview data shed some light on it, that when we listen to Republicans talking about the struggles that they have in getting their members on the same page, they kept talking about mistrust between the leaders and the rank and file. And that leaders of the Republican Party are frequently criticized by rank and file Republicans for their insufficient co- commitment to conservatism. Um, that um, that they have an they have an ideological benchmark against which leaders can be measured, and when they have to strike these bipartisan deals that are necessary in divided government or in order to get something through uh, both House and Senate, that that opens them up to criticism uh, for. Uh, lack of ideological fidelity to Republican principles, the Republican in name only. We didn't see, we didn't hear this same divide in listening to Democrats talk about their internal problems. That insufficient commitment to progressivism <laughs> didn't come up as major cause of you know problems for the Dem- for Democratic leaders. 
Instead, it seemed to be more of a problem of the coasts versus the interior, especially on regulatory policy or environmental issues. Um, so there, not a north-south divide, but a divide you know, uh, urban-rural or urban-suburban um, that seems to be more important for Democrats than for, um, for Republicans. But this is, you know, this is qualitative uh, data. Uh, it's, we don't um, we don't follow this through with a analysis of roll call data, and I think it'd be hard to substantiate in that way because uh, you know the work that's been done on roll call voting has shown that it's very one dimensional. Yeah, and you can see this if you look case to case with what happens in Congress. And part of Francis notes this is hard to look at with roll calls, and that's in part because a lot of times when the party is divided, they simply don't take a vote. Uh, it's easier just to bury it. And so you don't get to see these divisions come out. The parties are really good at this today. They just, they're really good at trying to obscure their internal fractions as much as possible. Oh, we don't have the votes to move forward on this. We just won't vote. Mm -hmm. um, but you see it if you follow what's happening in Congress today, where think about all the things that House Democrats have been able to push through the House of Representatives. And part of that is because it's a majoritarian chamber and they don't need Republican support to do it. But most of those things couldn't even pass couldn't even unify Senate Democrats and pass with 50 or 51 votes. And that's because the way the Senate is structured means you have a lot more Democrats in the Senate from the interior of the country. You have Democrats from West Virginia and Montana and a lot of other states where you simply don't have Democrats in the House. In the House, it's mainly coastal Democrats. And so you, you can see how these divisions play out in terms of what Democrats can unify behind in the House versus what they cannot unify behind in the Senate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it's so powerful um, to have this message and to keep keep, to keep giving this message about, you know, these roll call votes, they really do not tell the whole story. I mean, my, my, my students always find it really fun when we bring up those DW nominates and you look at, you know, look at them historically over time on vote view and you, you kind of see this clean air. But that really is not the whole of the story because of the way in which these party leaders are, are so adept nowadays at, at, at withholding uh, votes on issues that are going to split their caucus. So, so, so um, I think it's a powerful message and one that we need to give over and over again because it's it, it, um, perhaps not everybody. It's it's sort of um, uh, uh, well, everyone needs to read your book basically um, uh, and, and really understand a lot more about what's going on. Um, I mean, I wanted to, to to draw in this idea about unorthodox lawmaking now because I, I think this is a very interesting phrase. I'm kind of thinking, well, having read your book, I'm just wondering whether we should just jettison that phrase entirely because if unorthodox lawmaking is kind of the orthodoxy, I mean, it doesn't seem to re really make much sense. And I'm just wondering, uh, Jim, whether you think there's any value anymore in kind of constantly comparing with the so-called textbook Congress, because that's where often our, when we teach American politics, we're starting with that as our, our kind of jumping off point. Uh, uh, does your book maybe say we should be moving on and thinking in other ways? Yeah, I don't think it makes a ton of sense to make that the starting point, because in some, in some bills are still considered and passed in a relatively orthodox, regular order manner, though obviously the number has shrinked, but really the legislative process has just become highly flexible and idiosyncratic from bill to bill. They approach it as, well, what is the process we can take to move this thing forward? And on some legislation, that means like you can actually work something up in a committee and bring it to the floor. And they're not, you're not going to see a whole, a whole lot of like open floor debate and amendment in the House of Representatives anymore. We haven't seen that for years. But at least, like some stuff follows something closer to like the old way of doing business. But a lot of stuff doesn't. And then there's a whole mixture of ways in which they just try to get things across the finish line. I think what we should really be te teaching people is that Congress has a lot of flexibility in how it goes about considering legislation. And it'll use that flexibility to its advantage to 
try to get done what it can get done. And at the end of the day, the only rules that really matter is that you need a sufficient number of votes in the House and a sufficient number of votes in the Senate. And if you can get that, and however you can get that, that's how Congress is going to try to do it. Francis, do you want in on that? I think uh, I think uh, uh, Jim sums it up. I think we shouldn't um, uh, we shouldn't treat the textbook Congress as normative. That you know that if Congress doesn't follow these old processes, that somehow it's not working properly. That uh, instead, you know, to take a more open view and realize that Congress pursues the paths that it does today because those are what it finds necessary. To, to make something happen legislatively, that that you know Congress is getting things done. We see that in you know the lawmaking that occurs, in the amount of legislation that occurs. We haven't even talked about how much Congress did in in 2020, but on, you know it leapt into action to address the pandemic and did so with with bold social welfare welfare initiatives. You know you know. Uh, you know, po- poverty last year in the United States did not rise, even when 30 million people lost their jobs. That was congressional action that did that and did it, at the, it very quickly in the in the teeth of the crisis. So Congress finds a way to get things done. Um, uh, and uh, it may not look um, orderly, but um, but uh, uh, shouldn't underrate um, how, how much it accomplishes uh, on a uh, uh, on an annual basis. Well, yes, Jim, please. It's just, it's just such a, to me, it's such a strange thing for people to adhere to. Congress has constantly evolved its ways of doing business. We seem to have this strong connection and affinity to the way we perceived it to have done its business about 40 or 50 years ago, which I don't even think is a fully accurate picture of how things really worked then. Um, but that was just one snapshot in time. Like since if you go back to the 1790s and moved up to the present, Congress was constantly evolving how it did things, the procedures it followed, the norms that it followed. And we should understand Congress as what that is one of its strengths. It's an institution that can adapt how it does its business to continue to try to make policy and address public policy problems for the country and not see those changes necessarily as a negative. So these are very um, stirring comments and I, I have to kind of push this is where this is where I it, maybe it's a bit unfair um so feel free to push back at me on some of these things but you mentioned normative Francis and and and, and uh, we're using some uh language I think um that is that is uh you know maybe could be construed as expressing some normative position so I want to kind of push you on the normative implications of what you have uh this this piece of, of utterly brilliant political science research um and that is just, you know, how should we feel about the phenomena that you're uncovering? Because when you say uh, this is uh, about the majority party needing to act in a more bipartisan way, that just sounds absolutely super. Um, um, but if it's if we turn that around and we say, well, this is a representing, you know, the minority party has the capacity to frustrate the will of the uh, uh, majority party. It, it has the capacity to frustrate the ability of the majority party to pass legislation that is... Um, supported by mass publics, um, uh, that just sounds rather less appealing. So um, I wondered, Francis, if you would be able to comment, um, as I say, perhaps this is unfair, but would you be able to comment on some of the normative implications of what you um, are uh, uh, find in your book? Well, Americans say they want to see bipartisanship in, uh, in governance. And that is how Congress, in fact, governs. Now, Congress is 
you know, struggles to gain 20% approval rating. Um, but um, but if, if we look at what, what Congress actually does, we see that it is bipartisan in when it acts. Now, um, there are you know challenges of gridlock. It's difficult for Congress to act. A bicameral legislative body in a system with separation of powers and divided government seventy percent of the time, that is um, uh, you know it is it, it, challenging to make something happen. Now I wouldn't go so far as to claim that bipart- bipartisan laws are good laws. I, I um you know I don't think you know one could you know look back on the history of public policy and say that, that, um, that that's, a good, that's a good benchmark for assessing. But if you want to understand Congress as an institution for conflict resolution, that is its strength. Uh, that Congress finds ways to reach bipartisan agreement and to legislate in ways that command large majorities. That is, that's functionally what it does year in and year out. And uh, I, I think that serves a valuable purpose in a political system, even if in many cases the public policies adopted fall short. Um, that, that Congress helps to bind the country together in this in this in this way. Yeah, I mean, on that arc, we have such a large, diverse country with clearly significant political fissures in it. I don't. It's regardless of what you think about the contents of any specific law, and I think that's whether you like a policy or not. That's in the eye of the beholder. To what Francis said, if you constantly had laws passed in this country on partisan lines, you would constantly have one side or the other that was quite upset um, and that could undermine the legitimacy of those actions and of the institution even more so than it already has seen. And in some ways, it's nice that you have to get this broad buy-in before anything passes because then it has some level of broader support most of the time. There are obviously exceptions, the Affordable Care Act, the Republicans tax laws, whatever the Democrats are going to try to do on reconciliation won't have that bipartisan buy-in. But those things are more the exceptions than the rule. And it's, you know, I think that legitimization of having resolved some of these conflicts and gotten buy-in from different parts of the political spectrum is a highly underrated aspect of our system. I like this phrase quite upset because I mean a lot of people are pretty upset right now so <laughs> fundamental problem of causal inference but it, it's a terrifying prospect what, it, what things might be in, in the absence of some of the, the um, processes that you describe and, um, so uh, I, I wonder Francis if I could ask you and this is perhaps again a little bit unfair but just this questions about the future of the filibuster and what your work might uh, well, the implications of your work for the future of that institution and um, uh, perhaps the debates about whether it ought to continue in the form that it has at the moment. Well, it's clear that the filibuster is under pressure um, and that, you know, we've, we've had um, uh, procedural changes around the filibuster that have streamlined the ability of, of presidents to get their nominees considered and, and uh, affirmed by simple majorities. Um, I would say, though, that our uh, investigations into internal party divides points to some ways in which the filibuster is of value to the majority party in the Senate at any given time, because it allows them to hide behind the filibuster. They, in many ways, they can't come to internal agreement on controversial issues, but they can they can blame the opposing party. They can say, you know, we would deliver on these controversial matters, you know, that our base would like to see us um, 
move ahead on, but at the other side, they're blocking. Um, and that if you, um, if you did away with the filibuster, or they would have to confront those divides and that, and, and confronting them would be more in public than, uh, than they currently have to, to be when they um, hash out these issues among themselves. You see this happen when the parties are asked to pass something through reconciliation. Suddenly then all their divides become a lot more transparent, a lot more visible, just like the, dem- the, di- the difficulties within the Democratic Party right now. That goes as the, the filibuster can't protect them from having to, to air their dirty laundry in public. So the filibuster makes the Senate more opaque, but I question how much it blocks. I think it, we, it, it blocks less than it appears to block because the um, majority party prefers to, um, to, you know, to, to shift the blame to the minority um, uh, and allows the filibuster to continue. Filibuster helps them in that, in that regard. Um, it helps them politically. It helps them dodge tough issues that they want to dodge and that they would have trouble managing if they had, if they couldn't dodge them. That's wonderful. Okay. Well, I, we're going to um, have to draw ourselves to uh, our conversation to a close in a moment, but um, uh, I, I wondered if I could ask you both um, where you are going next with this project, because I've been a long admirer of your uh, many co-authored papers um, on this subject, and I'm so delighted to see your book. Um, Jim, what's next uh, for you in terms of your research agenda um, following on from the Limits of Party? So uh, something Francis and I have been working on now is trying to understand if we find all this data about how Congress continues to be bipartisan, continues to get things done. So the nat- natural next question we came to is like, well, why don't people notice this? Why don't people see what Congress is actually doing? And so we started to gather some data that's really looking at how how newspapers are writing about, how the media is writing about what happens. And, and for the moment, we're, we're starting by focusing in really heavily on something like uh, the CARES Act, which was a big, un, like completely undeniable bipartisan success where there wasn't a lot of conflict around it. Um, and we want to see like, how is it actually being portrayed? And if you look in general at like all the COVID, all the COVID response legislation, how is it being portrayed? How is it being write about? Was was the media writing about there being a lot of conflict around this? Was the media, or was the media actually focusing on the fact that they got to agreement? The idea is to try to get to a, a place where we can understand what is the impression being made through the lens that people actually get to hear about congressional action, and is it do they get are they getting a message that well Congress is working together and that they are moving in bipartisan ways and they are passing things, or do they get a very different impression of an institution that's constantly in conflict and constantly unable to move forward to try to try to get at like, why is it that we, we, what we find, what we do about how the Congress performs versus how the public seems to perceive it. That is fascinating because I, I, I mean, absolutely. That's the other side of the, the, this, this story, isn't it? I mean, it comes back again to the kind of question of what your metrics of success is, whether you're thinking about policy output of various sorts or whether you're talking about policy outcomes and people's understanding and of course in the book you have this wonderful section about credit claiming and blame blame shifting and so on and it'll be wonderful to hear more about uh, how people understand what congress is doing are you going to be collecting any um, public opinion data as well as part of that effort we haven't yet this is just this is our first paper that we're working on uh, in this new uh, in this new project so what we've been what uh, uh, Jim and I and another co-author um, Rob Oldham who's a, a graduate student here at, at Princeton they um, we're, we're all working on coding 
Um, they have a silly elaborate coding scheme. Every newspaper article on uh, uh, in national newspapers uh, dealing with um, COVID relief legislation last year, and sort of tracking, you know, what was the impression that you'd get from this paragraph? Is this con- is this about Congress being bogged down, or is this about Congress reaching agreement? And there's a lot more news coverage of conflict. Uh, now, you know, that's that's part of the uh, that's part of the the, the Congress's public relations problem here, which is that conflict is a front page story. When when Congress works out an agreement on a bipartisan basis, then it's sort of good news. Congress is getting things done. And then, you know, there might be some coverage of the legislative effects later, but not not coverage of that Congress did this. Um, And so, you know, Congress doesn't get much credit as an institution for what for what happens in uh, uh, in, in public policy terms, it gets there's a lot of coverage of the deadlocks that when Congress is having difficulty moving ahead, you know, over the summer last year, uh, uh, in the lead up to the elections, there was uh, a lengthy period of stalemate in congressional negotiations over the next COVID aid package. Well, um, it was story after story. They have to have, you know, that someone's got to ride on the Congress beat. They put a story. about, And so you get the impression from 2020 that Congress was bogged down in conflict all year. <laughs> but in fact, it did so much. <laughs> we really need your corrective. Um, and I really hope more people read your book because um, it is absolutely fascinating and it's so well researched. And it tells us such an interesting story about um, how these parties try and, and legislators, individual legislators try and negotiate um, this very, very polarized era and these institutions that are frustrating and have always been incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And um, this has been absolutely wonderful. It's been such a pleasure to meet you both and to talk to you uh, about your book, which is The Limits of Party, Congress and Lawmaking in a Polarized Era, University of Chicago Press 2020. Please go out and buy it. Uh, all it remains to say, Francis, Jim, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. This was great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us.